0: Welcome to Rex Factor. This week, Baron Carrier of Navarre, with your hosts Graham Duke and Ali Hood.
1: Hello. Hello. And welcome to Rex Factor, reviewing all the Queen and Prince consorts of England, from Elswith to Prince Philip.
0: What's going on, then, with with that lot this week? Who is it?
1: Well, as you've heard, we're doing Berengaria of Navarre, possibly one of England's least uh, famous queens. Uh, Berengaria, which means bear-spear. Which is quite cool. Oh, that's right. cool. As uh, often been dismissed by historians, uh, Anthony Bridge described her as being dull, plain and worthy, while M. Mead <laughs> criticised her as a passive female who allowed herself to be buffeted around by the winds of circumstance and never raised a finger on her own behalf.
0: Uh, the first description... Mm, They're the sort of kings that I dislike
1: They are, but, you know, as we've often seen in terms of how women are treated in history They're often sort of dismissed and their concerns and issues ignored Berenguer does have her own story, so we are going to focus on that and tell it today
0: Biography
1: So, Berenguer of Navarre was born in about 1165 And she's the queen consort for Richard the Lionheart
0: We still don't have an accurate birth date. No, it's sort
1: of 1165 to 1170. It's roughly, and again, it's one of those where they sort of are making assumptions on when certain key milestones in her life that roughly this is when she's born. Um, So she is the daughter of a king, uh, the eldest daughter of King Sancho VI of Navarre and Sancho of Castile. So her parents almost have the same name. (laughs) Cool. Oh, my
0: God. Gosh, Sorry. I know a Sri Lankan com- couple called Anton and Antoinette, <laughs> which is uh, oh,
1: that's, that's still
0: satisfying 15 years later.
1: Anyway, Navarre probably is the best place to start Berengaria's story. Uh, any idea where Navarre is? Spain. Yeah. Indeed it is. It's a small kingdom in northern Spain, borders Aquitaine uh, to the north and Castile and Aragón. Uh, to the south, so this is before Spain exists as a unified kingdom so it's got lots of smaller ones Um, although predominantly Basque it was a cosmopolitan kingdom, diverse population, Um, in part this is because it's a thorough through for pilgrims apparently something like 200,000 pilgrims would pass through Navarre each year
0: that was the main industry was it? (laughs) yeah (laughs)
1: Uh, and unusually for the time it was largely tolerant towards Muslims and Jews
0: oh good hmm
1: now, for Berengaria, at her time, uh, Navarre's very much a kingdom on the up. Her father, who's a grandson of a Spanish folk hero, El Kid, uh, was a successful ruler. He recovered lost territory. He makes Navarre uh, a centre for cultural patronage, and he also brings it into more European orbit. So, Berengaria probably enjoys a very good education, will speak several languages, and exposed to a wide range of peoples and cultures.
0: El Cid? Mm. Same person, yeah. but pronounced Kid or something.
1: Yeah, oh. I probably got it wrong by saying kid. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I'm no, just checking. It's the same one. Mm. Yeah. But, so that's interesting that that, that it bringing it into a European sphere. It's, it's it was that it was considered that far away that it wasn't naturally part of the machinations of the European court, or it wasn't interesting and powerful enough.
1: I suppose when I say into the European sphere, I guess I'm obviously saying the sort of Northern European of sort of France yeah. and England and Anjou and yeah. stuff, because you know a lot of their connections will be to what would now be southern spain which at this time is ruled by a uh, muslim kingdom yeah
0: i see i see so very very different culture culturally
1: mm. but they also border aquitaine so they've kind of they've got their foot in both worlds really
0: mm. yeah
1: now, we don't have any portraits or detailed descriptions of Berengaria, though a study of her bones in 1960 revealed that she was about 5 foot 6 uh, in height, a narrow face, broad forehead and a pointed nose.
0: How can they tell about the noses? Because isn't that all cartilage mostly, the, like the pointy bit?
1: I assume there must be something they can do in terms of how the cheekbones and other bits... <laughs> Just draw it. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, why was she dug up in 1960? Uh, well, they discovered some bones, and um, we'll talk about this more in the Privy Chamber, but they found some bones which matched her age and time period, and they thought, ah, oh, these must be hers.
0: Hmm. Okay. I'll look forward to that.
1: Uh, rather uncharitably, a Richard of Devizes claimed that Berengaria was prudentiore quam pulcra, more wise than beautiful. Hmm. Though it's doubtful that he ever actually saw her in person. And as I said, there are no portraits or descriptions that survive, so we can't really say whether that's correct or not. Oh, harsh. Hmm. Her sagacity, however, is not in doubt. Contemporary chroniclers all attest to her being of good character. Uh, Amboise describes her in 1191 as a prudent maid of gentle womanhood, wise, gentle, valiant and fair, neither false nor a slanderer. She was the wisest lady in all truth that might be anywhere be found. Right, so she's yeah, nice, wise, sensible, a good egg. (laughs)
0: Uh,
1: She's certainly valued in Navarre when her mother died in 1179, when she's just 14 years old. Her father effectively promotes Berengaria to the position of consort for major court events. Mm. So he never remarries; he just gets Berengaria to fill in in place of her mother. (laughs) Uh, Then, not in all places, of course. Uh, Then 1185. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) Oh dear. In 1185, she's granted a fiefdom with the honour of Montréal, which provides her with an independent standing and base of power, which would help to raise her status in the eyes of a prospective husband. Mm -hmm. And that prospective husband was Richard the Lionheart.
0: All right, because he actually was just over the way then.
1: Yeah, so obviously when we're talking about Spain, it feels very different, very distant from England. Mm. But England at this time, of course, is part of the Angevin Empire, which extends to the Spanish border. So actually, from Richard's perspective, Spain's not so distant. Uh, So Richard is eight years her senior, uh, a brilliant soldier, troubadour, an heir to England, Normandy and Anjou. So quite a catch, really, in the marriage market. Mm. Uh, Navarre and Aquitaine, as neighbours, have close ties in language and culture. Uh, some chroniclers actually claim that Richard met and fell for Berengaria when competing in a tournament in Pamplona in 1177, uh, but as she was only 12 years old at the time, this doesn't seem terribly likely.
0: Well, I mean, we've had worse.
1: Well, that's true. <laughs> yeah. See next episode when we get to John. Uh, more likely, Richard's motivation would be strategic, uh, particularly because the neighbouring county of Toulouse—that's neighbouring for both of them—is something of a threat. To Aquitaine's southern border. And in eleven eighty seven Richard has pledged to go on the Third Crusade so he could okay. do with the local ally to be around to watch his back. Mm. And he's already got a good relationship with her brother. They've campaigned together previously. So marrying Berengaria, perfect way to cement alliance between Aquitaine and Navarre.
0: So Navarre is the bit that actually borders south of France. It's the Alp uh Yeah, the Pyrenees. No, Pyrenees, yeah. Yeah. So he's guarding that flank.
1: Mm. Uh, Richard becomes king a couple of years later in 1189, and he decides to finalise the arrangements. But such were his priorities that instead of going to Navarre in person, he sent his redoubtable mother, Eleanor of Aquitaine.
0: Good. Uh,
1: Eleanor is lavishly entertained by Berengaria's father, Sancho, who's obviously very keen on the match. But there is Mm -hmm. a very slight problem in that Richard is already betrothed to somebody else. That he's not just betrothed to anyone, he's betrothed to the king Not the king, but we'll come to that. He's betrothed to the (laughs) sister of the king of France, Philip Augustus, uh, and uh, the lady being the princess, Alice, uh, of the Vaxan. Um, And he's been betrothed to her since he was a child. And even more awkwardly, Richard's on his way to Sicily to meet Philip and travel off to the Crusades together.
0: Oh, dear. Mm. Awkward.
1: So for Sancho and Berengaria this is something of a risk because not only do they have to make all of these arrangements in secret but there's actually no guarantee that Berengaria is definitely going to get married when she actually makes it
0: Well I mean it's not even like she it's not even like at the normal level of risk it's mm. it this guy might be dead by the time he comes back from crusade Yeah it, He's already engaged and he's already proven in that engagement that it is unlikely to happen. Yes. <laughs> There's not a lot going for it.
1: Uh, nevertheless, Berengaria is sent off and uh, Eleanor takes her all the way to meet Richard in Sicily. Berengaria does have the air of one with wisdom beyond her years. As I said, all the chroniclers talk about her sort of wisdom and her sensibleness and all of that, but it's still a very intimidating situation. She's heading to the other side of the world, one of the most forceful figures of the age in Eleanor of Aquitaine. And the journey itself is pretty arduous, carried up and down the Alps in litters over precarious passes, and sleeping in remote monasteries over winter. I should say this is Mm. Uh, before finally making by boat. Well, yeah, Uh, before finally making their way down to Naples. Um, Sadly, no account of the journey uh, together survives. But there's nothing later on to suggest that Eleanor and Berengaria formed any kind of special bond.
0: Okay, I mean it's tricky to. I mean the Alps in winter is a serious thing yeah you know it's not like they stop they're having a knees up they're then staying in a monastery oh god yeah. Thank god I brought my iPad
1: <laughs> uh, despite the secrecy around all of this Philip is still suspicious of why Eleanor is coming along and he suspects that Richard is going to try and get out of his betrothal to Alice uh, now, the ruler of Sicily, where they're all heading, is a chap called Tancred, who's already at odds with Richard, because he's imprisoned his sister, Joanna, who was the widow of the previous king of Sicily.
0: Sorry, whose sister? Richard's, uh, Richard's sister. sister, Joanna. The son of... The daughter of Henry Henry II and Eleanor. Henry II. Yeah. What did Rich, um, Henry do about it? Well, is Henry dead?
1: Henry's dead, but okay. Richard's obviously not terribly impressed.
0: Mm. Yeah, okay. Yeah, Let's let's see how he deals with that.
1: And he's not going to be, um, and he's going to be even less impressed when Philip persuades Tancred to stop Eleanor and Berengaria going to Sicily. So when they get to Naples, he says, sorry, far too much of an effort to get you guys to come over to Sicily. You're going to have to go somewhere else or find a different route.
0: Right. Okay. Across, not no. that port effectively.
1: Yeah. Okay. So Richard's pretty peeved about all of this. And uh, when he finds out where this has all come from, i.e. Philip, they have a big old row. Philip tells them he's got to marry Alice. Richard says he's not going to marry Alice because she's been having an affair with his dad and he's got witnesses to prove it. And Philip, rather reluctantly, has to agree to release Richard from his betrothal.
0: But, I mean, meanwhile, now, is this the right time to say it? They're, they're, they're in a relationship as well, right?
1: Well, there are question marks over that. We will talk about that a little bit more uh, bit more but later. But just to
0: add another level of... Frisson. Um, yeah, yeah. Mm.
1: Anyway, Richard is now free of Alice. Uh, Philip sets off for the Holy Land by himself in something of a huff, uh, just a few hours before Eleanor and Berengaria finally arrive. Okay. Okay. So, Berengaria uh, may have been fairly relieved that Eleanor then quickly had to return home because of unrest in England. It's probable that it uh, might have been somewhat intimidating presence. Mm. And instead, she passes into the care of the now newly released Joanna, sister of Richard. And it seems that Berengaria and Joanna do develop uh, a close relationship. They're exactly the same age and spend the next few years completely in each other's company. Uh, Piers Langtoff uh, said that Queen Joanna held her dear. They lived as doves in a cage. Hmm,
0: that's nice. I mean, in a cage. That's nice. But. <laughs>
1: Uh, it's good for Berengaria because she's not getting much by way of companionship at this point from Richard, because his priority is very much going on the Crusades. However, terrible storms cause havoc amongst his fleet uh, when they leave Sicily. Two ships are sunk and others scattered off course, and the ship uh, containing Berengaria and Joanna, who aren't travelling with Richard, are forced to make anchor off the port of Limassol in Cyprus, and the ruler of Cyprus then spends the next, three dra- uh, the next three days trying to trick them to come ashore so that he can hold them as ransom. What? Mm.
0: He- and who is this guy? What makes him think he can just start nicking people? And it- That's the assumption, though. The ladies on the boat know that that is a a possible situation.
1: Yes, yeah, so they don't come off the ship.
0: It's just so weird. That's the norm. Come on, come over here. No, you're all right. We'll stay here.
1: Uh, But obviously, the longer it goes on, the more they worry that he's just going to force them to come ashore. And they don't know what's happened to the other ships. They don't know what's happened to Richard. Yeah. Thankfully, though, Richard is fine, and he arrives with the rest of his fleet in time, saves Berengaria, and while he's at it, conquers the entire island.
0: Oh, good for him.
1: (laughs) And at this point, Richard finally decides that enough is enough, and it's time to get married to berengaria and indeed it's the perfect chivalric setting it's a summer's day on a beautiful greek island where aphrodite herself is said to have been born Uh, richard is very much up for the chivalric the chivalric occasion he wears a rose silk tunic scarlet cap gold embroidered cape and sash and a gold and silver scabbard riding to the chapel on a magnificent spanish charger and uh, such was the focus of the chroniclers that nobody recorded what Berengaria was wearing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, perfect. So three days later, Berengaria is crowned Queen of England, and then Richard and Berengaria are crowned Emperor and Empress of Cyprus.
0: I bet that's just for the fun. It's like going and owning a piece of moon rock or something.
1: Yeah, I guess it gives him the power to decide who's going to rule it in future. So he's going to pick a useful person, yeah. so that then that sort of route to the Holy Land is in the right hands. Mm. He also creates a new order of chivalry in her honour, the intriguingly uh, named Order of the Blue Thong.
0: <laughs> oh, God, I so wish I had my scandal bell. The scandal is meant to be very dull. How, did, how on earth did that come about?
1: Sadly, I just found a reference basically saying that in one book, and I've been able to find no other information about it. Maybe that's one when uh, we have our interview with a historian who's a, a Berengaria uh, fan we can ask about the Order yeah. of the Blue y- Yes, please. Anyway, she is now married to Richard and she is now uh, the Queen of England as well as the Empress mm. of Cyprus. Uh, they have a month on Cyprus and then they set off for the Holy Land again, travelling in separate ships. Uh, meaning, ironically, it's none other than a still sulking Philip Augustus who actually welcomes her to the Holy Land orcs. Uh, though he's courteous enough to lift her ashore. Mm. Uh, so, in terms of the Crusades, although Richard failed to retake Jerusalem, which was technically the point of the whole thing, he does enjoy various victories, makes his legend uh, as a Crusader king. Uh, but yeah. for, M- for Berengaria, the experience is probably not quite so glorious. Her crusade is one of domesticity. She's just residing with Joanna in sort of magnificent palaces, moving around every now and again, weaving, embroidering. Listening to some music, not really getting to see or do very much.
0: Is Eleanor there?
1: Eleanor is not there on this occasion. Eleanor's now back in England. But she was in Cyprus. Uh no, so Eleanor went to Sicily and then they mm-hmm. heard that John was Johnning back in England. <laughs> so Eleanor. Oh
0: so Eleanor had to say alright, I'll leave you for this bit. Oh that's a shame. I bet she was looking forward to going on the crusade for the second time. Oh, yeah.
1: I'm gonna put right what once went wrong.
0: <laughs> yeah. John. You know I was looking forward to that. I know, mother. <laughs>
1: But, as I said, for Berengaria, not such a great experience. The highlight for her was probably a Christmas court at Latron, when uh, Berengaria had the rare opportunity to perform the ceremonial role of Queen, when she held court with Richard. Anyway, Richard doesn't manage to get to Jerusalem. He makes peace uh, with Saladin, the Muslim leader, and at the end of 1192, uh, September 1192, Berengaria and Joanna leave the Holy Land and head off to Rome. Uh, Richard Again, travelling separately, plans to join them. But he gets waylaid on his way home and is taken hostage in Austria. Mm. Now, there's a legend that Berengaria was the first to realise something was wrong because she was shopping in a market in Rome when she saw a jewelled belt, which she recognised as being one that belonged to Richard, and she realised something must be amiss.
0: Oh, I, I I really hope that's true. Imagine.
1: It would be nice.
0: Why isn't it true? Just the... Just uh,
1: un- how unlikely it is. How unlikely it is, I think, also, just that I think the reality is that somebody said, Oh, I've got the King of England here. Do you want to give me some yeah, money? Yeah, but
0: if it's just how unlikely it is, that there's a chance it could be true. And, like, why else do we know about
1: it? Um, I mean, there's also the other famous legend is of Blondel, his minstrel, who goes around singing a song that he and Richard know. Oh, yes. Castle to castle. And then Richard gives the refrain. And then he's like, Ah, here he is. Oh, is that true? I fear also just a legend. A lot of romantic oh. chivalric legends attach themselves uh, to Richard.
0: You're bursting my bubble, man.
1: I know. In Berengaria's case, she doesn't really know Richard that well, but at this point, so for her to spot oh. mar- a uh, belt of his in a Roman market seems a bit of a stretch.
0: Okay. Well, yeah, that, yeah.
1: So Richard ends up being imprisoned by the Holy Roman Emperor, who uh, actually hints that he would seek to imprison Berengaria as well, should she. Try to make it back to England, so consequently, she's forced to remain in Rome as an honoured guest of the Pope for the next six months, uh, along with Joanna, uh, of course. Uh, eventually, a bit of diplomatic work by the Pope means that he is able to arrange for her to be escorted back to Poitou, where she takes up residence in the castle of Beaufort en Valais, just uh, north of Saumur. Because that's.
0: Uh Richard's land, that's their home effectively.
1: Anyway, so Berengaria is now back in Aquitaine, but Richard is still imprisoned uh, Berengaria had tried to get the Pope to secure Richard's release, but ultimately a huge ransom uh, will have to be paid She does her a bit and uh, collects some ransoms uh, in Aquitaine and uh, when most of the money is raised and various hostages are given as surety for Richard to be released a bit early, uh, her younger brother Fernando is one of the hostages anyway The ransom is sufficiently uh, raised. In 1194, Richard is released. Good. So they've been married for several years by now. The chivalric romance of their wedding day has perhaps given way to the reality of being married to Richard the man. Uh, Berengaria was at Acre when Richard notoriously massacred about 3,000 prisoners. Oh, yeah. In a rather chilling fashion. Uh, And he made very little effort to see her either going to... Whilst there or coming back from the Crusades, um, it doesn't seem to have written to her from captivity, but he does a lot to Eleanor. And when he is released, it's not to Berengaria that he returns, but to Eleanor. Hmm. So Richard heads back yeah. to Mummy, back to England for a second coronation to which Berengaria is not invited.
0: What? Isn't she Queen? She well, is I mean, Queen, yeah, and she has been doing.
1: crowned Queen, but uh, even though Richard's getting a second coronation, he doesn't think it's worth the bother bringing her over.
0: Well, it's fifty percent off isn't it.
1: So it almost seems like, with no child having produced after a few years, for Richard's perspective, there's basically nothing that Barry and Gary can offer him that he doesn't already have from his mother. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> oh, dear. But um, is that because they don't get on? did they try, or is he too spending too much time in bed with um, Louis, Louis, Philip?
1: Well, that is something a lot of people have speculated, whether Richard may not have shown any interest in her because he could have been homosexual. Hmm. So there's an account by uh, Roger of Hovedon in relation to Richard and Philip in the 1180s, which says, Philip so honoured him that every day they ate at the same table, shared the same dish, and at night the bed did not separate them. And the king of France loved him as his own soul, and their mutual affection was so strong... That uh, because of its vehemence, the Lord King of England, at that time Henry II, was dumbfounded.
0: Dumbfounded because he's ashamed or, or what? Because, or, I mean, bed sharing was a different thing, right?
1: So that's the thing. It's common for men of rank to hold hands, share mm. kisses of peace, even a bed, as a sort of diplomatic show of alliance. The vehemence may just mean intended to emphasise the intensity of their alliance against Henry Second hence why he would have been so dumbfounded. Doesn't necessarily mean genuine affection. Um other historians point to the fact that Richard does have an illegitimate son, and chroniclers claim that he, you know, on campaigns has sort of raped women and done all sort that sort of thing, so they say he probably isn't gay, but at the same time it's only one illegitimate child, which at that time isn't very many from a man in his position. Mm. Raping women on a campaign, that can be more about power than it is about actual desire. Certainly, none of this precludes him having a physical or emotional attraction to men.
0: Mm. Mm. What's the answer?
1: We don't know. I mean, clearly they don't hit it off sufficiently for Richard to think that it's worth his time being with her. Mm. And when they don't produce a child, he maybe thinks, well, that's the only reason possible I have for marrying you at all. And if we're not going to have any children, then literally I've no interest in you. I do have my mother, so...
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I know of females. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's it, then. He's going to just... Can you cast pe- um, wives aside at this time like you did in Sex Times?
1: Well, it's, it's not easy, but it certainly is possible if there was... I don't think there's any issues of consanguinity with Richard and Berengaria, but, you know, if he wanted to say that the marriage hadn't been consummated or something like that, then I'm sure he could have found a way out. It's certainly a very difficult position for Berengaria. She's an outsider in the Angevin realm and Richard makes no efforts to establish her. So, apart from Joanna, she doesn't really have any inside companionship at all.
0: Or influence at all.
1: Or influence, indeed. Until, that is, 1195, when Richard is upbraided By a hermit.
0: He's done what to a hermit?
1: Upbraided. Told off. Okay. Just passing along the road and a hermit has a go at him. And the hermit says to Richard, Be thou mindful of the destruction of Sodom and abstain from what is unlawful. Mm -hmm. So he stops all that. He's also criticised by the Bishop of Lincoln for living apart from his virtuous queen. Um, He doesn't stop all that initially. He's not particularly interested until he falls very ill. Fears that he could have died, and he sees this as a sign from God that he needs to mend his ways, mm-hmm. so he received his wife, whom he had not known for a long time, and renouncing unlawful intercourse, was united with his wife, and the two became one flesh. Then God gave him health of body and soul
0: um he He had a sex which cured him, yes, that very heavily implies. He was gay, isn't it? Mm. And that's contemporary?
1: That's Yes, that's, this is contemporary. Oh, gosh. Um, thus reunited, uh, Berengaria and Richard purchase land together, build a house in an, uh, an idyllic setting at Sir Torre, and there are signs mm. that she's starting to be afforded a bit more of a public role. They hold Christmas together at Poitiers in 1195, uh, and then the next year they attend together the wedding of Joanna and the Count of Toulouse, uh, so in 1196. But unfortunately the uh, reconciliation seems to be rather short-lived. There's no evidence they actually live together at the house that they buy. And Richard, Mm. being Richard, is quite keen to get back to doing some fighting. Yeah. So off he goes to Normandy, fighting with Philip Augustus, and he starts building a magnificent new castle, available in the Rex Factor special episode, Chateau Gaillard, which perhaps rather pointedly he refers to as his daughter.
0: Oh, you see... I think when when we did the Chateau Gaillard episode, or even Richard's episode, we might have mentioned that he called it his daughter. But hearing this other perspective on it, it, yeah, it's it's far more interesting to get both sides of the story.
1: It's like I've got my mother, I've got a castle,
0: <laughs> my sword. I could name my sword after you. <laughs>
1: Uh, some historians have even speculated that Richard might have been considering an annulment at this point. He obviously does need a son and heir, uh, and mm. they don't have one. And what's more, the fact that his sister Joanna marries the Count of Toulouse means that that strategic advantage of marrying Navarre to see off the threat of Toulouse doesn't really apply uh, anymore. Yeah. yeah, yeah. However, whatever he may or may not have been intending, in March of 1199, Richard is hit by a crossbow bolt whilst besieging the small castle of Chaloux The wound turns gangrenous and Richard is dying. Mm. And so, as a dying man, obviously, he summons the most important woman in his life. Eleanor. Eleanor is summoned to him and uh, is with him when he dies on the 6th of April, 1199.
0: I mean, if you didn't get on with your wife, right, um, or or worse than that, you didn't get on with her and you didn't know her, she was like a distant work colleague, I can understand wanting your mum at the bedside instead of your wife. I mean, it's not a choice of the two. It might have been a mate.
1: Well, no. some have argued that this may have actually been more of a strategic than a personal decision, because calling for Berengaria to attend him urgently would potentially have alerted the French to the fact that something was wrong. Right. Whereas Eleanor going seems a bit more normal. Though, again, the fact that Richard wanting to see his wife would make everyone sit up and go, oh my word, something terrible <laughs> has happened.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it says a lot, doesn't it?
1: Yeah. Uh, when the Bishop of Lincoln tells Berengaria the news on his way to Richard's funeral at Fontevra she was said to be sorrowing and almost heartbroken at the news. <laughs> um, possibly suggesting unrequited love on her part, or at least that she sort of knows what she's meant to be doing.
0: No, I think that just suggests that she said the right things at the right time and then was thinking, oh, thank God, we can go back.
1: Uh, But she decides not to go to the funeral, though she does go to Fontereau a few days later, uh, witnesses a charter by Eleanor, and she then goes on to Mm. escort her sister Blanca to a chart and acts as a witness for her to marry the Count of Champagne.
0: Because we're now in um, her
1: role as Queen... Oh, no, she's not Queen Mother. No, she's not Queen Mother. No children. So what is her role then? Well, I think she doesn't really have a role in England and this is the thing for her. The fact that her sister marries the Count of Champagne is actually quite an important link for her in the next few years. She's never established herself in England or anywhere in the entrepreneur realm other than her own house, mm-hmm. basically. So she's a very isolated figure and tragically the one person in the family that she was close to, Joanna, dies in childbirth just a few months after Richard. So she just go home, right? She's all alone, but uh, she doesn't just go home. She should have been very well provided for because she has a dower. So this is basically all the lands and incomes that Richard has said, you know, when I die, if you survive me, all of this will be yours. So he's providing Mm, for her in death. Unfortunately, the man responsible for honouring all of these rights is the new king of England, his brother John. No. It may not surprise you to learn that John was not entirely forthcoming in paying up.
0: Oh, John, just when you think, he can't get any worse.
1: She meets him at Sheenon in 1201, and John promises to enlarge her dower, uh, but doesn't actually pay her anything. And then when Eleanor of Aquitaine dies in 1204, there are a lot of her lands that should then have passed on to Berengaria, But they didn't. Pretty typical petty johnning. But mm. for Berengaria, it's much more important because, unlike some of her predecessors as queen, such as Eleanor of Aquitaine or Matilda of Boulogne, she's not an heiress in her own right, so her dower is her only source of income. So, John is actually yeah. basically reducing Berengaria to destitution at this point. She genuinely doesn't have any money or land or anything.
0: Oh. She's out of the game.
1: What's she going to do? Well, things get so bad that in 1200 and she, uh, 1204 she is forced to seek refuge with her sister in Champagne. Uh, thankfully for her, though, things improve somewhat when Philip Augustus conquers Normandy from John in 1204. And this means that Philip is now the overlord of some of her lands. So he agrees that if she gives up her claim to quite a few of these territories, in return he will give her an annuity of 1,000 marks. So, I, I don't know what that is in today's money, but a decent amount of money every year, as well as ownership of the city of Le Mans.
0: Not a bad deal. Hmm. So, from 12.04, she
1: is uh, ruling Le Mans, and she's got some mm. money, she's got a place to live. It's better.
0: Yeah. Well, retire at that point. <clears throat> I know i said this before about when to cash in. She is no. not
1: retiring, however. She is not going to let John off the hook, and she is absolutely relentless in pursuing her claims to all of her dower lands in England and uh, other bits of the oh, Angevin yeah. Empire. Um, She does still have friends in high places, not in England, uh, but in Rome, with successive popes taking up her cause. Uh, Now, John dies in 1216 with her debts, unsurprisingly, still unpaid. So she continues her feud with his son, uh, Henry III, and his regency council. Uh, The Knights Templar are appointed as her agents and guarantors in England, and in 1225-26, Henry III finally agrees to settle the debt and she has paid her monies.
0: God, that must have been stacking up, though.
1: Yes, she doesn't get all that she was originally meant to get, but she does get you know, a decent amount in the end.
0: Mm. Mm. She's cool. now
1: able to put England aside and focus instead on Le Mans. Uh, but this isn't always an easy ride, either, because she's dragged into various disputes between rival churches in the city, which sees her fighting for her rights once again. But mm. again, she is supported by the popes and uh, is very much determined not to give in. Mm. Her main project, though, is the foundation of a new Cistercian Abbey of La Pole, which is sanctified in 1231. But sadly, Berengaria doesn't get to live to see it being sanctified, because she dies in December of 1230, aged about 65.
0: Oh, good work.
1: Mm. She's buried in the Abbey's choir, with eyewitnesses observing that it was a wonderful sight to behold, with many in tears at the loss of the Lady of Lamont. Uh, she also commissions her own effigy, which depicts her on her wedding day and celebrates her status uh, as the Abbey's patron. But she doesn't get to rest entirely uh, in peace after this point. A fire in 1365 led to the Abbey having to be rebuilt. And after the French Revolution, the Abbey was being used as a barn and her effigy was discovered under a heap of wheat.
0: Huh.
1: Then after much toing and froing, as we also mentioned earlier, the fact that her bones are discovered, potentially, in 1960, the tomb and effigy are finally restored and returned to Lepore in
0: 1988.
1: Lepore. Lepore. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing Lepore. it right. L'epau. So that was the life and consortship of Berengaria of Navarre. Let's find out how she gets on when we review her. Battleiness. Although she doesn't have anything to do, it is impressive that Berengaria goes on the Third Crusade. She is actually there in the Holy Lands. Uh, before, though, uh, when she was captured, or not qu- quite captured in Cyprus, more to the point, she showed good sense in refusing the entreaties of the ruler, Isaac Cominus, when he tried to get her to disembark, and this is an account of those moments. They had not dared to go on shore because they did not know the state of the country, and they were afraid of the cruelty and treachery of the emperor. They began to waver, anxious that if they submitted the Emperor's persuasions, they would be taken captive. On the other hand, they were afraid that he would attack them in their refusals. But other survivors did end up being killed or imprisoned uh, for ransom, and she and Joanna obviously would have been the absolute number one prize targets, other than Richard himself. Mm. So if they had gone ashore, if they had given in, uh, it would have made Richard's task for the island and indeed Crusades a whole lot more difficult. So we're giving her points for making that decision? Well, you don't have to, but that's, uh, that's mm. an option.
0: How do they get the message, though? That she was there and there was
1: trouble? And I guess maybe that's why it took three days.
0: Yeah, finding her
1: <laughs> I've conquered so many Greek islands and there's no <laughs> sign of this woman. <laughs> However, it's after... She was queen that we really get to actually see what Berengaria was made of. John probably assumed he could just ignore her and that she'd disappear, but Dowager Berengaria proves rather indefatigable, indefatigable mm. in pursuit of her rights, and she wouldn't be mollified by John's excuses and promises of future generosity. And as mm. she said, crucially, she'd cultivated such a positive relationship with the papacy that both Innocent the Third and Honorius the Third advocates on her behalf. Innocent mm. threatens John with papal censure and actually does ultimately excommunicate him, while Honorius complained of John's frequent acts of injury and theft against Berengaria.
0: One of the Pope excommunicates him, I mean, there's so many things they could have excommunicated him for, but this this was just one of them, or is it this specifically?
1: This was one of them. The main thing which pushes him over the edge, uh, pushes Innocent over the edge, is that John refused to accept um, Innocent's choice for the new Archbishop of Canterbury, Stephen Langton. But Berengaria's situation was still very much part of the excommunication package that, yeah. uh,
0: <laughs> that John was applying for.
1: Yeah. Uh, none of this resulted in John actually paying up, of course. So when he died in 1216, Berengaria was owed over 4,000 marks, which is quite a significant sum in those times. Yeah. Uh, but following further appeals to Rome, it was agreed that the Knights Templar would be her agents and guarantors for the payment. And after writing directly, to Henry III again, a settlement is reached, whereby Berengaria gets payments of 1,000 marks a year and the revenues of tin mines in Devon and Cornwall in lieu of the arrears that she was owed.
0: Okay, good deal.
1: That is a good deal, and that's so 12.25, and Richard died in 11.99, so that's a long time that she 25. is... 25? 12.25 that she eventually gets her money.
0: Oh, good for her. God, oh, it's like a Philomena film. <laughs>
1: Um, surprisingly given her piety and popularity in rome her other major conflict comes from the church or rather a church specifically the saint julien cathedral chapter of Mans. berengaria was a patron of a smaller church of saint pierre le coeur and the two churches were at odds over jurisdictions and taxes within the city so a dispute over livestock sales saw berengaria incarcerate in the tower of Mans the men owing allegiance to the cathedral chapter So basically, as somebody who's selling animals, she says, you owe me this money. He says, actually, I think I owe it to the cathedral. And she says, well, you're off to prison then. Okay. The cathedral chapter puts an interdict on the city in response to this. But Berengaria has obviously got friends in high places and she receives papal dispensation for the church to continue to celebrate Mass in a low voice and without the ringing of bells. (laughs) Just
0: don't annoy... Don't annoy that cathedral. I know they're annoying. Just give us a minute, and we'll all calm down.
1: Carry on. Just, just
0: keep it down. Keep it down. Yeah.
1: Uh, but ten years later, Berengaria uh, refuses another demand of the cathedral to pay back a tax that they claim uh, was owed to them, and she claimed was uh, part of her rights. So the church is placed under another interdict. This time, the church, uh, her church, doesn't get a papal dispensation. But because she's so popular in Rome, Berengaria gets a personal dispensation to keep on hearing mass, And a compromise is reached in 1218, where after leaving uh, the city for a short time, Berengaria processes back into the city to greater claim, and ultimately the uh, the matter is settled.
0: And she didn't pay?
1: I think she does pay it back, but it's a ludicrously small amount of money that's actually owed. It's entirely about the principle of the thing.
0: Oh, good. Love it. Um, That's great. I like her I like her a lot.
1: Do mm. so you remember that quote from an historian at the end saying how she was buffeted around, never lifting a finger to do her own thing? But she actually oh, nonsense. Yeah, Widowed from Richard, who never gave her any time. Her family are distant, her in-laws are hostile, but she found champions in the papacy and, you know, fought her battles. Yeah. Um, I mean, against her, as you say, you could say that there's not really any evidence of her demonstrating this hardiness when she is actually Queen of England.
0: But... But she's barely Queen of... Does she even go to England?
1: Well, we'll talk about that, but um, essentially, no. I guess against her, another thing you might say against her, that the battles she does fight, they maybe feel a bit small-scale. Like, it shows she's got fighting spirit, but it's a bit sort of... a bit provincial.
0: But they're the... the the person... You know, you can only beat the person put in front of you. Mm. And that is, after all that nonsense from Richard, when she couldn't really... Her in battles, because she was being kept in a situation where there weren't any in mm. front of her, yeah. spends the next thirty years going right. Had enough of this, of this buffeting. I am going to do. Oh, I I like it, and I I. It's tricky because I've, I sort of want to give her some more points, but I know I'd be skewing the system by doing so. Mm. They're not really, it's not really battles. I don't mean warfare. I mean like it's not. Yeah, it's major for for in within her life story.
1: Yeah that's the thing I think isn't it it's it's important in her life story it's not really mm. has a major impact on anyone no. else's national or on a national level it doesn't really have any kind of impact it's really personal battles rather than yeah international well battles. we have
0: just had Eleanor and I know we shouldn't do it but we, you know talk about overshadowing any yeah. you know she sneezed it would they'd hear it in
1: Castile yeah
0: um a nice three, maybe.
1: Oh, I'm going to be a little bit more generous to her. I was going to, I was going to give her a, a down the middle five.
0: Yeah. Because
1: I'm feeling like you know that's demonstrating her hardiness, demonstrating that she isn't a pushover. Impressive that you know she's able to get the papacy to back her in so many battles, including against the church. Oh,
0: that, that is, that's really true.
1: But I don't think I could go any higher than five because of the fact that as you said it's all kind of just personal battles and she isn't really able to do anything that's really impacting in a bigger way.
0: Maybe that's not her fault though. It's not her uh, fault,
1: but as you said, you can only play the cards you're dealt, so if you have yeah. played a low hand, you're not gonna get a high score.
0: Well I still don't think it's five. I'll go
1: four because I like mm. the
0: like the papacy bit, which I never thought I'd say.
1: <laughs> so a four and a five that's a nine for battliness. Scandal I'm afraid I've got nothing to go on here particularly if we compare you know her impeccable reputation on the crusades they have nothing to say about her presumably because she doesn't do anything with even a of scandal and we recall that when Eleanor went on the crusade and she was accused of having an incestuous relationship with her uncle and all sorts of other things going on
0: I feel like I was reaching for my scandal bell quite a lot in that one though
1: you were, but I think probably more about Richard. Zero. It's got to be a zero, I'm afraid, for Berengaria when it comes to scandal.
0: Subjectivity.
1: Although ignored by the English uh, contemporaries, um, people in Navarre and Le Mans were full of praise for Berengaria. Uh, the Archbishop of Toledo, who knew the whole Navarrese royal family, was particularly impressed with her. Berenguela lived on as a most praiseworthy widow and stayed for the most part in the city of Le Mans devoting herself to almsgiving, prayer, and good works. An example to all women of chastity and religion. Uh, But she's very popular in the world. She does a good job, evidently. She seems very pious and charitable, particularly caring for beggars and uh, abandoned children. And indeed, her lack of reputation in England is largely because Richard never gave her the opportunity to be... Queen. The one time he did was uh, 1195, and they held Christmas together at Poitiers, and apparently Berengaria learnt of uh, the plight of the populace, who was suffering from a severe famine, so persuaded Richard to distribute all his surplus, fun- uh, all his surplus funds to the public.
0: That's nice. That's good.
1: Uh, had Richard allowed Berengaria any authority, she may very well, have done a pretty good job. She'd fulfilled the role of consort in Navarre, um, for you know, a good ten years, and spent nearly thirty years ruling uh, the city of Le Mans. So she had you know genuine authority there. She appointed her own Sainte-Charles She was assiduous in checking her accounts and expenses of uh, her representatives. She was acknowledged as the city's ruler in correspondence with the French king. She even presides over a duel in twelve sixty. <laughs> like there was no guns, right? Uh, well, a fight.
0: Hmm, okay.
1: Uh, her major legacy, though, in Le Mans, is the foundation of Le Port Abbey, um, which again shows her diplomatic skills because she made such a strong impression on Louis the, uh, the IX of France that he described her as our dear, beloved and faithful kinswoman and provides her with 46 acres of woodland, 7 acres of meadows and 2 acres of gardens, and she then supplements that with private purchases of neighbouring land. Because although she's the ruler of Le Mans, it's only for her lifetime, so she actually has to purchase land in order to found an abbey.
0: Oh, that uh, right, yeah. And build it.
1: And build it, et cetera, yeah. And according to legend, there, there were some mills nearby, and apparently the monks kept complaining about their, the noise of the mills. So Berengaria purchased them so that from now on, whenever they hear them, they'll just think about all the money that the mills are making for them and stop complaining.
0: Oh, that's good.
1: So... Plenty of nice stuff there for Berengaria. She seems like the ideal consort. She's pious, charitable, beloved by the papacy, humble character, unlikely to cause the king difficulty, but can still be tenacious when required. Unfortunately, she was not given this opportunity by Richard. She only issued one charter as queen, and that was when she was in Rome. And incredibly, as we said earlier, she never set foot in England whilst queen of England for which that mm. is the only consort for whom that is the case.
0: But she was... Because we're doing... it Because she's an... She's not an empress, but, you know, that's the area mm. we're talking about. Yeah. Um, her effect on England.
1: Y- yeah. I mean, I, th- I think both are relevant. I think she deserves to be credited for good stuff she does in other places. But I think, nevertheless, it's certainly relevant when reviewing all the Queen and Prince consorts of England that not setting foot down. in the country <laughs> is a negative.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay.
1: Yeah, um, she did ultimately come to England. So when people say that she's the only consort queen never come to England, that's never whilst queen. But in 1220, she joins Henry III to witness the translation of the bones of Thomas Becket to a new shrine in Canterbury Cathedral.
0: All oh, right, what's she doing there with Henry? Like suddenly popping up? Henry says, oh, "I've got some bones. You oh, know, I want to." <laughs> That Adelizer of Blue Land or whatever it is. What is it?
1: (laughs) I think that is the first time you've ever remembered the name Adelizer of Levan.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No. When he meant
1: Berenguer of Navarre. Uh,
0: Yes. Yeah. Why did he suddenly put her on top of the list?
1: I guess she was getting all these letters from her saying that she wanted her money and land. And he was like, let's just give her a a ticket to the hottest hottest ticket in town.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Go and see some bones, love. Hmm. Make two. (laughs) <laughs> Rubbish.
1: Her record in Le Mans is also not completely without uh, blemish. We mentioned how the Navarrese were unusually tolerant towards uh, Jews, but while Bergeret does use Jewish financiers for advice and loans, she does also acquiesce in the confiscation of Jewish property and seems to have supported efforts to uh, convert Jewish people.
0: Mm. I bet that wasn't on the advice of the Jewish financiers. <laughs> no, probably
1: not. I tell you what,
0: Your Majesty... I've got loads of money. <laughs> have you? <laughs> yeah.
1: Uh, in her defence, one of her spiritual advisors in Le Mans opposed ill treatment of Jews, so perhaps the conversion efforts might have been well-meaning, even if not particularly a model. Are, but um, it, it's probably fair to say that property confiscation is more financial than ideological in its nature. So she's maybe right. just taking advantage of them because... There's an opportunity to get some property, rather than that she's got a particular vendetta. So it's Did, it's not an Edward the First level of persecution, but no, um, still not great. Uh, we might also question the benefit of her battles with the church, uh, the cathedral church in Le Mans, because twice the city is placed under interdict, um, and as I said, over very trivial amounts of money, which we kind of like from a battle-y perspective because you though know, that shows her stubbornness and a refusal to mm. give way, but from the perspective of the people who aren't able to have mass held, aren't able to have funerals conducted, maybe not such a great thing for them, particularly when she gets a special papal dispensation oh, yeah. but the rest oh, of them yeah. don't. So you know Yeah,
0: that whatever point she got in battling us for that should definitely come off here. Um especially as we now know well, for, I'm incredibly fortunate not to know firsthand, but you know that's happening now, isn't it, with COVID, people mm. not being able to yeah. go to funerals and things. And it's um, terrifically upsetting. Um, so bad, bad,
1: bad mm. news. I mean, in in her defence, she, she was still very popular in Le Mans, so she doesn't seem to have lost support by it. The conflict between the two churches started before she came to Le Mans, and it continues after she died. So it's not that she's caused it, she's just, you know... The latest person caught up in it, and Pope Honoria said that her enemies were moved more by hostility than by concerns for what is right. So, mm. you know, if this was Edward, maybe you'd just be blaming the bishops, yeah, rather than Berengaria. I mean, if this was Edward, Edward, it
0: wouldn't be a problem anymore.
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> there'd be a different problem.
0: <laughs> there'd be heads on spikes. Yeah, uh, not good, I'd say. There's a there's a there's a an abbey.
1: She seems to rule Lamont pretty effectively. Other than this, yeah, uh, but it's this not conflict, like, what does he, she actually do? Um, well, I we mean, don't have the day-to-day details of her administration of Lamont, but basically, she's let's call her the governor of the city for twenty odd years.
0: I can't. It's no bigger than five because it's all a bit. It's a. It's another three. I feel like I don't know why I keep hitting on that number, <laughs> but. Any uh, meh, I think she deserves to lose points for the interdict. So, so I would have had her about four. What are your thoughts?
1: It's another tricky one because I feel like she's she's got sort of the makings of a perfect consort if she'd been properly employed. You know, she's doing all she's got all the stuff you'd expect a consort to do. She's pious, the popes like her, founds an abbey, she's quite humble. It's all really quite good stuff. The problem is that Richard doesn't really want her doing it because he's already got Eleanor doing it so she doesn't really get a chance to demonstrate any of that whilst Queen and the stuff in Le Mans sort of similar to Battliness I guess it's that same thing, it all just feels a bit low scale a bit low level
0: Yeah, but it I'm arguing against myself here but it is you do what you can, I mean I I like to think I'm a charitable bloke but I'm not I'm not Starting the Bill Gates Foundation, you can just do what you can. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um. Well, it's still not great, is it? Three. Really...
1: I'm going to be a bit more generous, but I think probably I'm going to have to. I'm going to have to come below the five. It's the tricky thing where I think that she demonstrates what you'd want a consort to do, but she doesn't get to do it. Mm. So it's like someone who's a really great soldier, but they no- never get their war. Yeah, I think that she could have got a very good score for subjectivity. She would have done the things that she should have done, mm. but she doesn't get to do it. So I'm, I'm still, I still feel like she is, you know, she's all right there though. So I'm just going to go down to four and a half, just below the five.
0: She's a Cold War Hmm.
1: Doesn't feel like that was quite what I was saying, but nevertheless, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> so four and a half and a three, seven and a half for subjectivity. Longevity So Berengaria of Navarre was Queen Consort of England From the 12th of May 1191 to the 6th of April 1199 Which is a total of 7.92 years Mm. uh, And converts into a score of 6.5 out of 20 So that's the 37th best for the series
0: Dynasty, not the programme
1: Sadly, of course, Berengaria never has uh, any children. Um, it's often assumed that she was infertile because uh, Richard has an illegitimate son but there's no evidence uh, to suggest this. Richard is almost entirely given over to military endeavours during the marriage suffers frequent bouts of ill health and may not have been as vehemently heterosexual as perhaps he could have been. And there aren't actually that many times when Berengaria could have hoped to fall pregnant. So, yeah, ultimately we don't know, but certainly a certain amount of neglect on Richard's part may have been a factor.
0: Yeah, almost certainly. Still, can't be helped.
1: And it does mean that she gets a score of 0 for Dynasty. So her total score is uh, 23.
0: Which is disappointing, because I liked her character.
1: Shame. But it's not all about the score, of course. Um, Does she have that certain something, that lasting legacy, the great quality that we call... Rex Factor! New... <laughs> no as we said before you know she's not perhaps the most exciting of consorts but as we said she's obviously no wallflower she does manage to find an independent role after a pretty unsuccessful marriage and she does have the con these qualities of an ideal consort so it maybe says a bit more about richard for fairly failing to recognize yeah her talents than it does about her for not achieving more but yeah definitely Sadly for Berengaria, the marriage was unsuccessful, and like for many consorts, her position is ultimately, in terms of, you know, the historical record, is determined by the state of her relationship with her husband rather than actually what she does later and what she's good at. So a successful Queen Dowager, but not a lot to talk about as actual Queen.
0: If we were to um, stretch our X Factor analogy further, and she were performing on X Factor... Mm. It's like she had all of the training to to go out on stage and deliver a fantastic vocal performance, but never went on that stage. She just yeah. couldn't. So you can't. You don't know whether she got the X factor or not,
1: mm. or that she'd done her uh, all her preparation. And then they said, "Could you just go on and do a rap instead?" <laughs> yeah. She's like, "Well, no, not really." Yeah. Oh <laughs> well, yeah, we'll have to cut this then.
0: And then, yeah, exactly. And then has. Uh, quite a successful career as a little-known producer.
1: Hmm.
0: Oh, what could have been?
1: So, sadly for Ben Gow of Navarre, I think that does have to be a no for both of us for the Rex Factor. She's got the qualities for a consort, but sadly, she didn't have the right husband for it.
0: Yeah, that's it, isn't it? It was the right horse, wrong course, or wrong course, right horse. Correspondence Corner.
1: So, that was the life and consortship of Berengaria of Navarre. Let us know what you thought about her. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram, where we are at rexfactorpod. Like the Rex Factor podcast Facebook page or email, rexfactorpodcast at com. And remember to send in your hashtag consort cards uh, to provide an episode image for us, because we don't have those lovely Heritage Limited playing cards for the consorts.
0: Hmm. There's been some stonking efforts, hasn't there?
1: Uh, If you'd like to support the podcast, you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe on whatever podcast provider you use. Uh, We are a free podcast, but if you'd like to support us financially, you can make a one-off donation via PayPal, or you can donate on a monthly basis, join the Privy Council, and get some bonus content. And we have some new Privy Councillors to welcome to the fold.
0: I love this bit, by the way.
1: Caitlin Walker, Nikita Adams, Louisa Boyce, Erin Cray, GRD Tobin, Rebecca Cole, Inyat Jane, SEO Ayton, D. Fingley, Hugh Donaldson, N Aibundu, Elsie Clark, Alexandra Bryant, Amanda Kennedy, Sarah Cantor, Pitsy eighty seven, Claire Southworth, Chris Douch, and Emma McCoy
0: Well, thanks very much, everyone, and Chris, good to good
1: to hear your name there. You um he's a big supporter and now some messages from privy counsellors this is from Mark Pyatt I really enjoy the podcast and feel that the consort series is just adding to the original series so well oh. thoughts for the future for me are Saladin Oswald St Cuthbert and the venerable bead himself P.S. Mm. by the holy face of Luca more Dunstan references
0: <laughs> Oh, it's just the word now isn't it <laughs> people are just sending in the word
1: and the word was dunstan <laughs> uh, Zoe Greenstein finally up to date so I've run out of Rex Factor content, joined the Privy Council so I could still have my daily dose of my favourite podcast, I'm now nice. looking forward to the three hour drives twice a week to university which I'll get to listen to you guys for
0: oh cool I, I tell you what, I when I subscribe to similarly structured podcasts, it is lovely when all of a sudden you get you open a door and it's a whole part of the house you never knew existed. Really nice.
1: GM Heiderscheit. Oh. Oh. All one word. <laughs> okay, fine. It's taken over a year, but i finally caught up. Thank you for all your hard work in putting this podcast together. I love it. Looking forward to the Privy <laughs> Council episodes. <laughs>
0: uh, it reminded me of Alan Partridge for some reason. <laughs> uh,
1: and finally from Privy Council Lady of Cornwall. Says my partner and I listen to your podcast all the time. He even nicknamed me his Duchy of Cornwall. I assume this is a good thing. <laughs> Cheers from Chicago.
0: <laughs> oh, you definitely want to Google that. <laughs> uh,
1: now some other messages. Uh, following our Twitter Monarchs poll, uh, we had one round featuring uh, Edred and uh, Henry the Fourth, both of whom had uh, rather unfortunate health complaints. Katie Micklethwaite asked, surely the key follow-up question here is, would you rather have Edred's unpleasant-sounding digestive issues or Henry's dehydrated eyes and whatever else was going on with him?
0: Lovely to hear from Katie again. Hmm. Um, hello, hope you're well. Who's dehydrated eyes?
1: What? Henry IV um, had various complaints. Uh, there's mention of dehydrated eyes, various skin issues. Some people suggest leprosy or something like that. Oh,
0: gosh. Oh, this is so tough. Um,
1: <laughs> food
0: one, then. Mm. i just blend it.
1: Uh, and finally, another consort limerick from Louise Brimacombe. Excellent. This time for Eldgith of Mercia, who is a consort to Harold Godwinson. Harold Second. Mm. When he needed a northern connection, Lady Eldgith was Harold's selection. This filter with dread for her first husband's head was part of his trophy collection. <laughs>
0: It gets me every time that's really very good it's really very good
1: so that's all from us and uh, Berenguer of Navarre next time we will be reviewing the consort of King John which is Isabella of Angoulême uh, but until then it's goodbye for me cheerio